Hi, welcome to Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. In our last discussion last week concerning hell, I made the comment that in the end, the Bible tells us that we will not remember those from our earth life who are in hell. And someone wanted the reference and I said I'd get it. It's in Revelation. There's many, actually, I found. But in Revelation 21.4, it reads, listen to this. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's uh, one reference. There's other references of having memory no more, and those are in the Old Testament primarily. Let's continue on with a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and just open our hearts. May the viewers uh, be inspired and learn. May I say the things you want me to say and may people come to know you by your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Okay, let me begin with an illustration. There's a teenage girl who has a dream that someday she's going to give birth to a curly, red-headed baby boy. So the next day after she has the dream, she goes and she sees a picture in a magazine of a baby boy that's curly and red-headed, and she cuts that picture out and she puts it in a journal. It's not the same baby, but it's just a baby with red curly hair. Later on, she has another dream as she gets a few years older that her baby boy is going to grow up to be a great basketball player. And the next day she gets a Sports Illustrated out and she sees a picture of a basketball and she cuts it out and she puts it in her journal. And then finally, when she's engaged to be married, she has another dream that her baby boy grows up to be a doctor. And so she again finds a magazine that has a picture of a stethoscope and she cuts the picture of the stethoscope out and she puts it in the same journal and locks it away. She's married and a few years later she is pregnant and she gives birth to a baby boy that has curly red hair. Now, the important thing about this is what does the young woman do now that she has had this living baby boy in her hands? We're going to talk about the Aaronic Priesthood tonight. And the function and purpose of it in the Bible and the way the LDS apply this Aaronic priesthood in their religion. The story I just told will help illustrate the futility, even the banality, of having an Aaronic priesthood in a church today. Okay? So let's talk about that and why. Let's suppose that this young mother that I talked to you about, who has now been blessed with uh, the actual fulfillment of her dreams ignores this living son. She has this baby boy, but she ignores this baby boy. Why? Because she spends her time looking at this journal where she pasted pictures of the dreams she had about what he would be. So while the boy is growing up, she doesn't give him attention. She looks at the picture of the curly-headed baby. And then she turns and she looks at the picture of the basketball. And then she looks at the picture of the stethoscope. And she spends more time looking at these pictures of what the boy will be instead of the living boy in her own hands and in her own arms. Do you see the strange and weirdness of this? It would be a case where the idea or the image or the foreshadowing of the object has taken a greater place in her heart than the living object itself. Okay, do you understand the parallel I'm trying to make? 
The pictures still mean more to her or have a place in her than the actual living, breathing child. I mean, the boy gets drafted into the NBA, he's setting records, he's scoring points, he's a great basketball player, but the mother just keeps looking at the pictures and doesn't pay attention to him. Perhaps more importantly, how would these ritualistic behaviors of the mothers make the son feel about his relationship with his mom? Would he feel that she really loved him, or would he feel that she has a connection to something different? The Bible is perfectly clear on why an Aaronic priesthood was established. It was a foreshadowing of something to come and to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that. Once again, the Levitical priesthood was established in anticipation or as a type of what Jesus would finally and ultimately do for us. Re-establishing the Aaronic priesthood is like a bakery opening up early in the morning and baking wonderful pies, fantastic pies. And they take those pies when they're done cooking and they set them off aside on a shelf or even throw them away. And they take the tins and they put the tins in the store window and they put the tins up for display. That's what an Aaronic priesthood is like now. You take the actual pie and what the, the, the tin formed it, and you, you forget the pie and you put the tins up. That's the logic of it. Now, I have a, an admission I have to make here that is going to go a long way in my critics attacking me. But I have to tell you that as a young man, as a preteen, as a teen, and as an adult, the, the term priesthood never meant anything to me as a Latter-day Saint. Now, I know all the Latter-day Saints are going to say, See, you never had a testimony. You were never really truly a Mormon. I have to be honest in this aspect because I think that there are a lot of LDS out there who have the same feelings, the same thoughts, same non-resonation to this priesthood. Now, when you're an LDS, Latter-day Saint, or, or you're a young man, you know, they'll say, Sean, you, have, you hold the holy Aaronic priesthood. You hold the, the holy Melchizedek priesthood. This priesthood is so important. It's an honor. It's a sacred privilege. And I just never, ever resonated to me in my heart as something that, that was real. I don't know why. Maybe I lack in that area. But I have a feeling that it does with you. I think it's like the king's new clothes. I mean... They say, yeah, look at, the, look at those beautiful clothes and look at the priesthood. It's so important. But I think a lot of people really are saying, you know, I, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And there's a reason why that uh, they don't get it. And we're going to talk about that. To me, the priesthood is the religious equivalent of having been accepted into uh, a men's hunting lodge or belonging to a respectable fraternal organization like the Skull and Crossbones Club. It's an elite group of like-minded, like-acting, like-dressing men under a collective of prescribed standards and rules. You feel like you belong. You feel an association. Yet, and you, yes, you are part of an elite team. Human beings love to belong to a group. They love to belong to like-minded people. So it goes a long way in helping our soulish selves feel like you're part of a collective union that's moving forward. But in the end, the ability and the power and the authority to act in God's name is markedly inferior to those men who simply walk, live, and operate by the humble faith in Jesus Christ, 
who trust that Jesus is with them, and by that power and authority, they operate. When I came to understand what the priesthood meant biblically, I also came to see why I was never impressed with it in the first place. And it really makes sense. So let's look at a contextual understanding of what the Aaronic priesthood is in terms of the Old and the New Covenant. All right? With Adam, man was his own priest from the beginning with Adam and presented his own sacrifices to God. Look at Cain and Abel. They presented their own sacrifices to God because they were their own priest. Afterwards, the office of priest went to the male head of every family. If not the father, it was passed on to the male head of the family who survived the father. We find that Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Job all offered sacrifice to God without intermediation of a priest whatsoever. The first time the word priest is used in the Bible is when it applies to Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And we're going to talk about the Melchizedek priesthood that the LDS claimed to next week. So hold off on Melchizedek priesthood questions. We're going to talk about them, about him and that priesthood next week. Okay, so when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, the ancient manner of head of household being the priest still remained. And at Mount Sinai, a change took place. In Exodus uh, 28, it teaches us that God had a hereditary priesthood take over. And that, that heritage that took over was that of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. The LDS call it the Aaronic priesthood. It's the Levitical priesthood. Why the Levites? Exodus 32:26 says, it was because of their zeal, for the glory of God. That's why God chose the Levites, the descendants of Levi, because of their zeal for the glory of God. Now there's two things to remember when you're looking at this Levitical or Aaronic priesthood. First, there were priests and then there were high priests, okay? And the Levitical lineage determined the two. Okay, so listen, it's not difficult. Levi had three sons and their names were Gershon, Merari, and Kohath, okay? Gershom, Merari, and Kohath. And here's Levi. Kohath had a son whose name was Amram, and Amram had two sons whose names were Moses and Aaron, okay? Only those who came from the Levi, Kohath, Amram, Aaron line could hold this Levitical priesthood. The rest of the lines of Levi from Gershon and Merari they could be priests, and they could do things in the Levitical priesthood, but they could not be the high priest, all right? That could only be the sons of Aaron, all right? Now, let me blow your mind here for a second. Not even Jesus Christ could do what the, uh, the Levitical priesthood holders could do. When he came to earth, he couldn't. Read Hebrews 7:14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Okay? You got all that so far? Not even Jesus, according to Hebrews, he came from Judah and he could have nothing to do with this priesthood. It only came through the Levite line, through Kohath and then Aaron. Now, Joseph Smith claimed that while he and Oliver Cowdery were translating the Book of Mormon in May of 1829, that they retired to the woods and had John the Baptist, 
appear and give them this very elite Aaronic priesthood. Now, you have to remember, John the Baptist had lines directly to Levi, both from his mother Elizabeth and from his father. He was a Levite through and through, and John the Baptist had all the rights to do all these things. Joseph Smith says that John shows up, John the Baptist, and he gives them the Aaronic priesthood. He gives a non-Levite the Aaronic priesthood. What for? Jesus couldn't even have it. What, what, what is he doing this for? Okay? Numbers 3 says that only Levites could hold this priesthood or the result would be death. Okay? So, but Joseph claims that John the Baptist shows up and gives it to him. This is a complete misapplication and misappropriation of what the Levitical priesthood even means. Remember, they call it the Aaronic priesthood. It's from Aaron. Why from Aaron? He was a Levite. Was Joseph and Oliver Levites? No. So they couldn't even hold it in the first place. And what do the LDS do with this Levitical priesthood today? They claim to give it to all male members between the age of 12 and 18. What's additionally wrong with that? If you read Numbers 3, uh, 4, 3, Numbers 4, 3, it talks about how you had to be 30 to 50 years of age to hold this Levitical priesthood. The LDS take it. First, uh, John the Baptist supposedly gave it to guys who were not Levites. And then those guys give it to 12 to 18-year-old boys who are, don't even meet the age requirements of holding this Levitical priesthood. Now, I want you to imagine something for a second. Aaron, he has two sons. These guys dedicate their entire life to this priesthood and what they have to do in the temple. It is such a serious event that at one time, two of Aaron's sons took strange fire and they mixed it with the fire of the temple. And you know what God did to them? He sent down and he torched them both to death in front of all the children of Israel. All right? He killed Aaron's two sons who did not do the things exactly right. Now, what do you suppose would happen hypothetically if Aaron showed up and he goes into an LDS church and he sees 12 to 18-year-old boys chewing bubblegum, doing Lord knows what the night before, holding this thing they call the Aaronic Priesthood, trifling with it, you know? But they apply it to this and they, and they reinstitute it to make it this organization to perform under. It's not, it's just not right. I say that a lot, but it's just not right. It was a serious call, okay? Are you beginning to see where the chutzpah is? To borrow it from our Hebrew brothers, the chutzpah to take this Aaronic priesthood and apply it to the world today. It just doesn't work. It's just simply another evidence of Joseph Smith, a synthesizer of religions, to take selectively and literally these things and apply them in this new configured way and call it the true restored church. All right. Now, how were these priests prepped to do this priesthood thing that they were supposed to do, which Mormonism says 12-year-olds? What, what prepped these Aaronic, Levitical priests to do what they do? They went through an arduous and cumbersome process of purification that you can read about in Leviticus 8. What did it include? A ceremonial washing, a prayer over the head of a bull, a live bull, the slaying of the bull, the sprinkling of the bull's blood and offering the sacrifice by burning it, then offering a bread sacrifice and then sacrificing two rams. Then that priest would be set aside for seven days and they would sacrifice more animals on his behalf. And then the Aaronic priest would be reintroduced to the congregation. Now you have to ask yourself, that's how it worked. What happens when the 
12-year-old uh, LDS boys today receive the Aaronic Priesthood. They are called into their bishop's office. They're interviewed, and they are given the Aaronic Priesthood by the laying on of hands. There's no connection, again, to what the Levitical Priesthood was of the Old Testament, to what the Aaronic Priesthood is of the LDS Church now. And then what were the sons of Aaron's duties in the tabernacle when they went in? So we've looked at their age requirements, we looked at their lineage requirements, we looked at their purification requirements. What did they actually do when they, what was the purpose of this Aaronic Priesthood when they were doing their thing? First, they dressed themselves in very specific and ritualistic fashions, which were changed according to what they did in the temple. Then they attended a plethora of duties, endless duties, that were meticulously described by God to be done exactly the right way. Exodus 27, Leviticus 6, 10, 24, Numbers 10, Deuteronomy 17, 33, Malachi 2, 7, all of which pointed to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay? I can't stress this part enough. Everything that was going on in this temple by these Levitical priests, all was pointing to one thing. All those fingers pointing to one thing. All those sacrifices, all those actions pointing to one thing. Jesus Christ and his finished work. That's why they did it. Okay. Now let me repeat this. It leads us to probably the biggest misapplication of the Aaronic Priesthood in the LDS Church today. And that is that they forget that it was all in anticipation of Jesus. Has Jesus come? We can say yes. Does the Aaronic Priesthood still need to be? No. Once a year, the high priest from the line of Aaron, who was from the Kohath line of Levi, who was between 30 and 50 years old, who had been purified ritualistically, who had been dressed in severely restricted ways, who had performed rites and rituals exactly as God commanded him, he would enter the Holy of Holies and he would offer sacrifice up to God for the sins of the people and for himself. So this was the whole purpose of the Aaronic Priesthood. This high priest would go in once a year, the Day of Atonement, and he would go into the Holy of Holies. Now, what was it? The temple was three parts, one building. Interesting, huh? Three parts in one, one building, all right? And the, this high priest, he would, not go for, he would go from the outer court to the inner court into the Holy of Holies, which was separated by a veil. And the veil was supposed to be about five inches thick. And Vernon McGee, biblical scholar, says that they used to say that two teams of mules pulling in opposite direction could not tear the veil apart. It was so thick and strong. All right. And he would once a year go through this veil. They would tie a rope around his waist. They would put bells on his clothes because if he passed out or died in there, they weren't allowed to go into this Holy of Holies. They would tie a rope around him. And if they didn't hear from him after a while, they'd drag him out by the rope so that they wouldn't have to go in and defile that place and be killed. That's how sacred all this was. And when this high priest went into this Holy of Holies, he offered blood on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the children of Israel and for the, his own sins. What's the parallel, my brothers and sisters? What parallel do we have when it comes to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ? There's no more need for an Aaronic priesthood. We don't have a high priest going into the Holy of Holies purified and offering up sacrifices for the sins of the people. Why? Because if you read Hebrews, you will discover that it is Jesus who has become and fulfilled these things of the high priest. Let me summarize it with this. As the high priest was of the right lineage, Jesus Christ is of the perfect lineage to do what he did in offering sacrifice. 
It was the lineage of God. He was God and he could do it. As the high priest entered often to offer sacrifice for the people once a year, Jesus entered once and for all. Okay, I'm going to read you a scripture here. Listen to these two scriptures. Hebrews 9.12 Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Okay, Hebrews 9.25 Nor yet that he should offer himself often, not like the old high priest did often, as the high priest entereth the holy place every year with the blood of others. He doesn't do it often. He did it once and final forever. There's no meaning of an Aaronic priesthood any longer. It's fulfilled in Jesus. As the high priest, he entered into the place where God dwells. This high priest of the Levitical priesthood went in the Holy of Holy. This is where God dwelt once a year, purified and ready to do it. Jesus now resides permanently in the Holy of Holy with God where he dwells. Listen to Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Finally, as the veil once barred all men access to the throne of God, the veil was rent in two when Jesus died on the cross. That veil that could not be torn apart by those, those two teams of mules, that veil where the priest went in and exited and then entered again and exited, that veil was ripped in half now because of what was performed in those temples. The Aaronic priesthood was done. It's fulfilled in him. Hebrews 10.20 by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Listen to that. The veil is the flesh of Jesus Christ. He becomes that veil. There's no more veils and temples to go through. Jesus Christ's flesh, Hebrews, it's his flesh that's that veil. And through his flesh, we enter into the Holy of Holy for the blood that he shed. Are you seeing the picture? All right. Uh, from the table to the showbread, to the censer, to the manna, to the Levitical priesthood, to the uh, mercy seat, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the Holy of Holies, to the veil, to the shed blood of every animal. All of it was fulfilled and finished on the cross by Jesus. We have access to the Father by faith in Him. The Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, has, still has a place with the Jews. And it will play a part in their relationship to God. But for the New Covenant, the New Testament, the Gentiles, the Aaronic Priesthood is over. Let's go to the phones. We're going to Paul on first time caller from Roy. Paul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, let me turn off my TV. All right, man. Hey, how you doing? I'm losing my voice. How are you doing? Hey, pretty good. I think you're doing a good job. I just wanted to ask you... Uh, you know, I was born into the Mormon religion, you know, way back and baptized at eight, but I never really felt, you know, that it was even, you know, made any sense. Even when I was eight years old, I was wondering what made you decide that the Mormon, that the Mormon doctrine was false. And then about, you know, what my folks and everybody tell me that uh, the Mormon religion is basically just a testament of Jesus Christ on this continent. Yeah. I just wanted to know what you had to say about that. Well, Paul, what, uh, and this is probably a good thing to rehearse every other show or so, but what led me to 
questioned Mormonism was the fact that it did not lead me to be a good man in my heart. I was a sinner in my heart and I knew it. And uh, I had to come to, to honest terms with that before myself and my maker. And when I realized that I couldn't be a good man through Mormonism's uh, approach, then I went to the Lord and He changed my life. And uh, we talk about that in many different uh, shows, but I was born again and that ultimately led me out. So uh, that's really what changed me is I recognized that all the things that they prescribed, all the ordinances, all the living the right way, serving the mission, doing it right, really being obedient, doing all those things just didn't make me right in my heart before God, and I knew I needed a new heart. Yeah, I didn't go on a mission either, but I understand you did. Yeah. think that Jesus could have came to this continent? Oh, I think that Jesus could do anything, but I don't believe that if he did, it's recorded in the, the book called the Book of Mormon whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thanks a lot. I'll hey, Paul, thanks for your call, man. Bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to Katie, age 11, on line two. Katie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Katie. I just wanted to ask that, um, what did you mean when you said um, about the church that had three, um, um, Three uh, parts of the temple in one building? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> Sorry, I was a little vague on that. Well, you know, um, God is three parts, one God. We believe in one God and one God only, and we believe in a thing called the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's three in one. The temple, it was the same thing. It was three parts in one building. It had an inner court, an outer court, and a holy of holies. Man, or you, Katie, are composed of three parts too. Your body, your soul, and your spirit. And it's your spirit that needs to be regenerated, means you have to ask Jesus to take over your life. And then when that's regenerated, it's like the Holy of Holies. It's the place where it dwells in you. Okay? So that's what I meant when I mentioned the three parts of the temple. Right. Because you didn't explain it, and I was thinking... Oh, three something and one? Yeah, that was a little bit vague, wasn't it? I'm glad you called me on it. You watch the show often? Um, yes. My mom and I watch it a lot. Well, thanks for calling, and you keep being a good Christian girl? Okay. All right. You take care, Katie. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, we're going to David and LDS. He, uh, David and LDS. David in Ogden, who is LDS on line four. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, um, how are you doing um, tonight, Sean? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm going to try to throw this stuff out as quickly as I possibly can. I have uh, two quick questions. Okay. Okay. Um, one of them would be, um, um, it was just a statement, not really a question. Um, do you realize that, um, um, according to the Book of Mormon, um, they were, had the power to give the priesthood to um, each other, according to Joseph Smith, um, the, um, the Nephi's uh, descendants and so on. But they weren't descendants of what you're talking about right now tonight. Yeah. They weren't descendants of that. There was, they, they weren't descendants of Levi. Yeah. That's an so interesting. They had no power, so that priesthood never existed, even in the even in the Book of Mormon. Right. Okay. And the and then and the next question. No, that's that's the one thing. Now the question is this for you. Um, I've spoken to you one time. One time. The, you got, the, uh, okay. So, is your TV on, um, David? You you 
you mentioned once that uh, I've spoken with one um, twice before, briefly. It's been about a month. But also, you, David, you got to uh, turn your TV off. The um, the 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 seven. Actually, what do you think about the um, the um, the Protestants re removing seven books? You know, there are seven books between that and Catholicism, uh -huh. and you said you thought it was a good idea uh -huh. or it was a good thing. Yeah. Now, do you realize that those? No, this is neither for or against, but those were considered part of the canon uh -huh. up till Martin Luther, because I was raised in a Lutheran church. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther decided to take those out himself. He took those out himself, mm -hmm. and as did Calvin and the later reformists. Mm -hmm. They I, were original David? canon. They had always been canon. Even they speak of it, some of the uh, church fathers, quote-unquote, going back to um, 125. Well, uh, David, David. They had been canon for a long time. Okay, David. Martin Luther took them out. Was David. They contradicted purgatory David? and things of that nature. David. David. Let me respond. You got to turn your TV off, David. It's because it's just it, what you're doing is you're listening to yourself talk yeah. and you're stopping to do that. Listen, um, yeah. Yeah. those books are available to you uh, in the Catholic Bibles. David, I'm going to answer you off the air, David. Okay. Listen, uh, those books are available for you to read. Uh, you know, Revelation's called the Apocrypha, I mean, uh, the Apocalypse, and all those different books are available for you to read in the Catholic Bible. Read them. Uh, I don't think they add anything that the Gospels or uh, the writings of Paul, are, I don't think they add anything. If they add something and you think it's something that's missing, well, you know, whatever. I don't b believe they do. And I think Martin Luther was wise. I think he, uh, you know, translated the Vulgate. And I think that he knew what was going on with that. And so he pulled it out. Uh, he was a reformer. You know, I like to reform some things too. I like to get rid of some scripture too and say, hey, I don't like these, any, you know, I don't think the Book of Mormon belongs in the canon of the LDS Church. And uh, hopefully in a, a couple hundred years, someone will say, did you know Sean McCraney tried to get rid of the, uh, the Book of Mormon and it was thrown away out of the Mormon Church? I mean, come on. I think that Luther knew what he was talking about. And I think that when you look at those Catholic books, they don't add anything to the canon of, of the gospel. There's a few little peculiarities. The apocryphal books add some uh, peculiarities too. I mean, the gospel of, Mar of Mark adds some real interesting peculiarities. But none of those really do anything to synthesize and, and, and add more to the word. So I stand by the word as we have it today. And I trust God gave it to us for that, for a good reason. Okay, let's go to Dustin. Dustin from Roy. How you doing, man? How are you? Good. You're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Um, quick question. Uh, actually, there's two questions. My first was when Christ uh, came to to the earth and started his ministry. He changed a lot of a lot of doctrines. One, for instance, would be the sacrament from sacrifice. Uh, wouldn't it be reasonable to think that maybe? In his coming, he redirected the Aaronic priesthood from changing, um, from being solemn solely to look toward his coming to serve a further purpose after his coming. You know what, Dustin? It's a good insight. And I see the parallel between the Aaronic priesthood's use in the LDS Church as them serving the emblems of the uh, sacrifice of the Savior and, uh, and the uh, preparatory priesthood 
that was done uh, through the Levitical order of the Old Testament times. So I, I see the parallel that you're making there, and I think that it would be uh, very reasonable to assume that that could have happened. The problem is, is I use the, the Bible as my guide, and the Bible doesn't teach me that, and it shows me instead that, that Jesus Christ became the high priest, and it's through faith that we walk through him. And so I follow that order instead of the logic that makes some reasonable sense regarding institutionalized religion. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, can I ask you one more question yes, as well? Yes, please. Um, my last question was, uh, the Book of Mormon, you said Joseph Smith grabbed a bunch of uh, different things from different religions. Well, I'm not saying he did that in the Book of Mormon. I said he was, he was a great synthesizer of religious yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Um, I was just wondering, how do you explain um, a 14-year-old boy or a 21-year-old boy mm-hmm. with an elementary school education mm-hmm. being able to interpret the Bible in such a manner, and also being able to write a book, inventing words for the English language, coming up with, you know, names and terms that have never been known before Mm -hmm. when his education was, you know, fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. How do you explain that? Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad you've asked it. How I would explain it is this. One, I think it's a myth that's been uh, perpetuated through Mormonism to paint Joseph Smith as an ignorant hayseed that that had no formal education and that kind of just mundered along the, the dusty roads and it was God's inspiration that brightened his mind. First of all, his parents were both school teachers. Second of all, his, fam- his great-grandparents and grandparents and parents were very involved in the Bible. The man knew his Bible very well. As far as having the formal education, there was little. Nevertheless, they were deeply schooled in what went on. Then, if you want to read, I mean, I, because it's a show, I can't give you an in-depth analysis, but you know, read anything to show uh, his history and what it was connected to. Dan Vogel's book, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, uh, Making of a Prophet. You can read um, the LDS author's book, Bushman's book, uh, and talk about the uh, the the mind of Joseph Smith. He was no fly-by-night. He studied Hebrew. He studied a lot of things. And he wasn't 14 years old when he did this, okay? he uh, 14 years old, he had the first vision. He came out and said he uh, received the plates later, and he had a good full uh, nine years, nine or seven, sorry, my facts are escaping me, nine or seven years when he said, I got the plates to when he actually showed a manuscript. And he was in his 20s when he did it. Now, let me tell you, there's a lot of great authors Uh, Look at J.R.R. Tolkien. How old was Tolkien when he wrote Lord of the Rings? He was young and he came up with a whole subterranean culture with new languages and new characters. And new, I mean, Tolkien was a great, and he did a far better job imaginatively than Joseph did on the Book of Mormon. It it was... So as far as, as, far as um, making a comparison is, how could he do it? It's very easily understood. He had a lot of time to do it before he produced the manuscript. He came from a background that established a lot of thought. He knew the Bible. And then if you read the um, 18, uh, seven, excuse me, 19th century themes that are in the Book of Mormon that he borrowed from what was going on, should infants be baptized or not, is hell eternal or not, uh, Gadianton robbers and Freemasonry, all those themes that run through the Book of Mormon, the guy was just a fantastic plagiarist. Okay? One last thing, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, you got to be quick. We got other callers. The Book of Mormon has been uh, nothing but proved true throughout history and discovery later on. Um, what do you think of that? I think what you just said is a lie. It's, it hasn't been proven true in any way, shape, or form, archaeologically, linguistically. I don't think it's been proven. Smithsonian and gen, uh, never, 
You show me one thing, I'll take you out to dinner and buy you anything you want. You're absolutely wrong and you're perpetrating a lie. Farms does not give any kind of evidence at all. The Smithsonian has written a letter. It has produced nothing. All it does is say, we think this is a connection. This could be a connection. Possibly, maybe the Mayans were the, the lost Nephites. All of it is absolute fabrication. Sorry, buddy. Thanks for your time. All right, man. Thanks for calling. We'll talk to you later. We're going to Phil on first-time caller from Tuile. Phil, you're on Heart of the Matter. Phil. Hey, how are you, Sean? Hey, good. How are you? I'm good. Hey, um, I, just real quick. I, I grew up in the LDS religion. Uh -huh. um, I haven't been active for 15-plus years, whatever. Uh -huh. um, I've watched your show, I don't know, for the last two, three months, whatever. Okay. Um, I'm just confused as to, you know, what to believe, I guess. Um... Most of your show is based at trying to prove the LDS religion wrong, right? Uh, yeah. Why? Because I know a lot of very good LDS people who want to know the Lord, who have no relationship with Him, who believe that through following the edicts of the LDS Church, meaning following their rituals and rites and their, their mode of getting to the celestial kingdom, are in bondage. And so I want to show what the Bible teaches about what truth is. And I use that as my guide. And when Latter-day Saints say they're Christian and that they believe in Christ, well, I go to the Bible and I show that they, they actually present a very different gospel. And so I believe that the LDS Church has not been contested in this state uh, on a, in a televised program. I think they go throughout the world with their message and I think they deliver only part of it. And so I just want to challenge them. Okay. Um... So, I guess, again, I'm confused. Is your motive to promote your religion, or is it to badmouth the LDS religion? Because I, I just don't get it. Well, there's a, this is a good call, actually. There's a, there's a fine line. We have people who are on one polarized side of the argument, and what they do is they get with LDS people and themselves, and they play nice-nice all day. You know, well, I love you, well, I love you, well, you're good and you're good, and I'm a Christian and you're a Mormon, but we're all the same. Okay, you have that thing going on. And then you have the other side, and you have people who are just slamming them, saying every single Mormon's going to hell, the, the, they are demonically possessed, every one of them, and, the, and they hold out crosses outside uh, general conference and things like that. I'm in the middle. I think that I can stand for biblical truth, but tell LDS I love them, and that they just need Jesus in their life and to be born again. I have never said that a Mormon can't go to heaven. I just know they can't go to heaven if they don't know the Lord through spiritual rebirth. And that is the focus of our ministry. So I'm not, I, I seem rabid because I really hit the facts hard. But I've been forced to do that on this show because if I don't, the Mormons call and they try to sway with this information, which is disinformation. So I have to give the hard, cold facts. But in reality, I'm in the middle of the road. I'm not nice, nice. And I'm not all out, I hate your guts. It's, there's a fine line between the two. Okay. All right. Well, again, like I said, I'm not trying to drag this out. Um, you know, I, I try to raise my, I've got kids, uh. you know, so I try to raise them in the, you know, at least give them an opportunity, the same opportunity that I had to make a decision, you know, and what they do with it down the line is up to them. Okay. Um, got to get to the point, though, quick, buddy. Okay. So I just, are you trying to get people into your church? Because if you are, 
are you going about it the right way and do you feel like you are? Well, I don't have a church. I belong to the body of Christ. And I believe that there are people all over the world who belong to this body who don't go to the same church. So I'm just, our, our, the message of our site is Born Again Mormon. Our book is called Born Again Mormon. And our focus is that Mormons can say, I have been born again of Jesus Christ. I know if I die today, I will live with him. That comes with being born again. They can't say that. And until they can say it, then I'll continue to push the message. So there's, you know, I mean, like the LDS church, there's no, um, you know, going to church every Sunday and, doing your thing and, you know, living the right way and then eventually becoming, you know, getting to the celestial kingdom, it's if you're born again, you're, you're done, right? Regardless of what you do for the rest of your life. Well, you know what? That goes to the once saved, always saved argument. And I would say, you know, that you're go we're going all over the place here, but just to summarize so we can go on the next call, um, if you are born again, you're going to follow God and you're going to follow Jesus through your actions. I have yet to meet a Christian who says, I've been born again through Jesus Christ. I know it and I want to sin like there's no tomorrow. They're not there. They say, I want to follow him with all my heart. And they do. And they actually do it with more diligence than the Mormons do. And I will, I can, I will go face to face with you on any born again Christian and their lifestyle versus a, a converted Mormon and their lifestyle, and I'll show you how Christians are not of this world, and Mormons straddle the worldly fence. Well, yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to debate with. Yeah, you. I know. I have to let that go, man. Call us back. Go. Cool. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Okay, we are going to Will's first time caller, LDS from Provo. Will, you're on Heart of the Matter. Will, is your TV on? I I just muted it. Okay. You ready? Yeah. You're on, buddy. Okay, can you hear me, Sean? I can. Okay, yeah, my, uh, my comment basically is to what you were talking about with the Aaronic Priesthood. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say that I do, I like your show. I think you bring up a lot of good points and facts, and I watch it, and I'm a devout LDS. Um, Thanks. Actually, student at BYU. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I just kind of watch the show, get your questions, and try to look up the answers for myself, so I can always respect what you're doing also in your faith. But uh, my question to the Aaronic Priesthood uh, the last guy made some mention about some of the laws, uh, for instance, like the medical law back in the Mosaic Law. Yeah. And back then, for instance, they had things like you take so many steps, uh, you can only take so many steps during Sabbath and things right. like that. And those things, of course, changed. Right. Um, they've, they're different now. And, um, you know, and, and also with the gospel, you know, you could only preach to certain people then also. Um, it wasn't the gospel, what was known as the gospel then couldn't be preached to everyone. So what would be the difference so far in being the changes in the Aaronic Priesthood um, now and today with the restored gospel? Uh, I'm not tracking. You, you try to, um, I'm sorry it's me, but just restate it more simply. What, what are you asking me again? What do you see to, how do you see it being different from, uh, from the gospel being, uh, from the law of Moses being changed? Um, how can you see that different from the Aaronic Priesthood? Okay, okay. Well, this is how I see the difference. Okay. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus is the, is the final and finished product of everything of the Old Testament. The Sabbath day is fulfilled in Jesus. We find our rest in Him. When we give tithes, we now give out of the, out of the hilarity of our heart because of what Jesus has done, not because of a 10% rule. When we look on a woman with lust in our heart, and uh, that is now adultery instead of just committing the act. 
The Aaronic priesthood was fulfilled in Jesus, being he became the high priest, stepped into the Holy of Holies once and for all, died for our sin, and then went to heaven, and now represents us before the Father in that holy place. We no longer have to have repetitive high priests go in and do that Levitical thing. So the Aaronic priesthood has completely been fulfilled in Jesus. And, and so the, really line, the, the bottom line answer is everything of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ. Okay, so basically you're saying there's no need for that authority now. No. No, our authority comes from our faith in Christ. And when he gives us the vocare or the call, the vocation, you hear that word vocare, it means vocal. When he gives you the call on your life, you will know it. And that authority comes through your faith in him. In Mark 9, the apostles are looking at a guy who are casting out demons, I think it was. And they say, what should we do to him, Lord? You know, because he was breaking the, the authority thing. Jesus said, hey, if he's, not, if he's not against me, he's for me. All right. He said, leave him alone. And that is how he operates in his body of Christ, body of believers now. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I see that. Can I, you mind me making one more comment? No. Uh, be quick. Okay. Basically, also concerning the Book of Mormon and the education of Joseph Smith, um, I think it's, I mean, it's held that the Book of Mormon is really a singularity. Um, you know, and you mentioned that, sure, of course, uh, both of Joseph Smith's parents were teachers, and he did have a good education. He did learn Hebrew and things of that sort, but... In a lot of ways, there's no way of explaining some of the uh, similarities that there are that you get from the Near East um, concerning the naming, concerning the, I mean, just all, a whole bunch of different aspects. I mean, how could you actually explain that? I, mean, I, I think it's explained really well by people who are much smarter than I am. And so what I do is I read their books, and uh, it's explained really, really well. I mean, I'm so sorry. you're smarter than I am, so I'm just looking for your comment on that. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm, just, I'm just telling you, I mean, if you really want to know the answer to that, I really recommend you read Dan Vogel's book, The Making of a Prophet, because he ties in what's going on in Joseph's life historically to the themes of the Book of Mormon. And I also recommend Bushman's book recently. Um, I've uh, read the Bushman's book. Too. Yeah, and I think he gives great insight into what made up Joseph Smith as to what he was. He I just believe there's a whole lot more there than just those simple insights. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're LDS, you're, you're going to believe that. And, and I understand that you believe that, but I just have to say that in my experience, when I look at Michael Marquardt's uh, example of the borrowings from the, uh, the, the New Testament Greek phrases okay. into an old covenant work that was supposed to be 600 years BC, it makes absolutely no sense. So I really think he was a great synthesizer. And greater minds have been there. Like I say, I think Tolkien creates a, a different universe that is just as is uh, is creative, actually more creative than than Joseph. At that point, you also have to go into the point of what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, with the Jew Judaism being Christian, the Christian being Judaism, and the dates, which are just confounding scholars now. So, I mean, yeah, you have I, a, the Dead Sea Scroll arguments. I don't think you're giving us anything. You got to give me something strong on that. I I think you're giving a lot of supposition, but and presenting it possibly as fact. But I don't know what you're talking about. Well, basically, what they're finding in the Dead Sea Scrolls is a lot of uh, what they would call Christian terminology found in the Jewish era. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of Jewish terminology found in the Christian era. Well, sure. With their Christian well, scholars, sure. have believed of. Uh, but there's a diff But you have to admit, there's a great difference. And I mean, there's a great difference in there being terminology that's a carryover from the Old Testament to the New. I mean, obviously, these were the same cultures. Our first Christians were Jews. We're going to have terminology exchanges between those two books. But when you take a, a saying out of, out of the Greek in the New Testament that's translated into the English through the King James, and you apply it to 600 years before Christ, you have a really big problem. 
I mean, it's an enormous problem. And, and, the, and the example I give, it's like saying, I find a manuscript in my backyard and I say it's 2,000 years old and it talks about Microsoft. I mean, that, that is a, as big of a comparison. It just wouldn't be the old document I'm claiming that it is. That's an anachronism. And the Book of Mormon's full of them. Understood, but in the same way, it's still being an assumption claiming that it couldn't be. Um, uh, well, you know, I guess it's an assumption that I'm alive, too. I mean, we can always go down the road of, you know, everything really is an assumption to a certain extent. This is, the, this is kind of one of the ways of Mormonism. I stand firm on the Word of God. I trust it because it has been proven in all those ways that we talk about. The Book of Mormon has not, you know. And even if it had, I would still be suspect of it. I'm sorry, I just would. I understand. That's fine. And well, Sean, I, I thank you for your time. I know you have a lot of callers, and I probably held you up a little too long. No, but you've been very nice. It's always less left up to the faith and the prayer of the people. But have a good day, okay? Okay, you too. Bye-bye. All right, we are going to Victor, first-time caller on line two. Victor, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, this is John. Hey, yeah. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? All right. I'm a long-time listener. I'm in Watcher. Uh -huh. um, I got a question for you. You had uh, something about the Bible a few, uh, a few shows ago. You're talking about the Bible? Yeah. Um, my, th my question is, you're talking about how they did the papaya, they wrote it on the papaya and everything, and uh, how they would get the, uh, the letter, the, well, get the word that was in the middle, and they would, uh, if it didn't line up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, where'd you get all that information at? Where'd you get the facts at? Well, I went to theology school, and, and uh, I had a lot of information that was annotated. I could give you the references of exactly where that history comes from. But you can, you can find those things out if you go to any... I mean, Norman Geisler is a great author on the authenticity of the book. If you want to see, read something that's not so heavy, read Lee Strobel's uh, works on A Case for Christ. And In fact, I'd suggest that book. A Case for Christ is very easy reading. He's a retired, I think, detective. But he uh, really goes and he talks to the experts on the Bible. And he can give you a lot of that stuff that I've mentioned before. I prepare my uh, shows through the information I have at hand. But I don't necessarily keep that stuff in my brain because it's too small. Okay. All right. That was it. All right, man. Victor, thanks for calling. I think you're doing a great job. Thanks a lot, brother. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to Pete on line four from Kuna, Idaho. Pete, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. P pleasure to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Um, I, I have so much to say to you, but... Um... You, got, you got about 30 seconds, my brother. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> um, first of all... Um, let's see here. I just, I think it's great what you're doing for the Mormon people. Um, can I say for the Mormon people out there, maybe if they study church history, uh -huh. that, um, a lot happened in the 1800s. Uh -huh. Um, a lot of stuff happened in the 1800s and, um, anyway, um, also that, um, when you brought up tithing last week, yeah, was, you, can you, you tell me what church doesn't um, promote tithing? Or I, I think you're really hitting it, Sean. Huh. I really, um, but but can can you recommend one that does a New Testament church? Um, hey, Pete, do me a favor. Email me. Uh, remind me, you're Pete from Kuna, Idaho. I won't forget that. Okay. And I'll dialogue with you on, I'll find out about some churches in your area that might be more biblically uh, oriented and teaching the word and, and help you, because they're out there. Okay. All right? 
Thank you. Hey, Pete, thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Listen, we have a guy named Cornelius calling from Salt Lake City. Now, we've had a bad experience with someone named Cornelius before from Salt Lake City, and uh, we're going to see if it's the same guy. Cornelius. Welcome to Heart of the Matter. <laughs> Cornelius. Hey, wait, I got the, the phone here. Merle. Cornelius? I guess, I guess uh, Cornelius is not there. And so, you know what? We have two minutes, 56 seconds. Uh, but we have Ted online, too. I'll take it quickly. Ted, uh, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, yeah, I just wanted to make a point. Um, yes. How you're saying how the, the ordinances they used to do in the temple back in yeah. the Old Testament, where it was the Aaronic priesthood that would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, um, and uh, sacrifice for the atonement of all the people. Yeah, um, the high priest. Does really, does really point towards the New Testament because it was the Levitical priests that sacrificed Jesus in the future. They're the ones who crucified him. Wow. wow that's a heavy comment, man. Yeah. That, that's interesting, Ted. Very, a very interesting thought. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay, God bless you. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, we have two minutes left, and I'm going to take those times. I'm sorry if you've called. Please call back. I want to make a comment to the LDS, and it's important that you understand this from my heart. I know that I am attacking your doctrines. I know that I am taking a sledgehammer, and I'm hitting out the foundation of your church. But I want you to know that I love you with all my heart. I want you to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I do whatever I can to expose the things that I know are not biblical so that you will say, well, you know what? That does make sense. And you will turn to God for your answers. You don't trust me. Don't trust your pastor. Don't trust your bishop. Go to the Lord and say, I trust you and give him your life. If you want to stay LDS, that's your business right now. I am not saying that. I just want you to come to know the Lord. Give Him the chance to be the guide and director of your life. Obviously, I have great difficulties with Mormon doctrine, and I know much of it is not biblical and is false. And I'll stand against it because I know it traps people and puts them on that, that, that wheel. But please know that our intention is to get you to look at your religion and rise up and say, hey, why aren't we talking about Jesus and his life in our meetings instead of our prophets' lives when they were little boys? Why are we uh, still holding this uh, holy Melchizedek priesthood, which we're going to talk next week, which isn't even a holy Melchizedek priesthood? Why are we doing all these things when Jesus fulfilled it all for us? That is our mission. And you may think I'm errant. You may not agree with my methods or my style or anything about me, but I want you to know it is out of love and concern for people who are LDS. I hope you are able to take this stuff into consideration. May God bless you till we meet again next week. Until then, we'll see you on Heart of the Matter. God bless. I'm on the ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising 
The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the 